up, dude? Little Mumford and Sons, eh? He wrote that, dude. Are you kidding me? What? Mike wrote a Mumford and Sons song? Yeah. Um, I think you have that backwards. <laughs> Mumford and Sons wrote a Mike Metz song? Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put internally at your disposal. Hey, did you put your video up of uh, when you performed at the uh, Blue Island Historical Society? I did, yeah. Not to not much acclaim, I don't think. I haven't checked the views on there, but since it, what it was already <laughs> since I like this morning. Hey, I, I will say this, and this is to my actual shame. I was there live, and I've watched it on YouTube more than once wow. because I because I enjoyed it so much. Thank you, dude. That was very fun. Uh, that will be one of my great memories when I. Leave this place. Felt very welcomed and, and and cherished as a human being and as a priest that night. Mm. It was spectacular. It was a kind of similar feeling to my 21st birthday. Um, a friend came in from out of town, Nick Blaha, who was a missionary, and he had, had been a missionary at U of I, but then went to a different school. And it just so happened that he was coming in to give a talk and it would yeah, that was my birthday. It was the Thursday of Easter week. And uh, my friend Pete got a bunch of our friends together and they secretly made T-shirts with my with different pictures of me on them with like <laughs> quotes of things I've said, uh, like speech bubbles coming out of my face. Was it like really profound stuff? Like, I'm hungry. <laughs> it was really just dumb. We had all sorts of stupid catchphrases that we said in college. Um and at the sacristan house there was a cake and i was like wow there's a lot of people in here and they all unveiled their shirts that they were wearing underneath their shirts and that it was all like my face plastered all over everyone's torso and it was such a weird gesture but i felt so loved in that moment um and then we went out to the bar and it was my 21st so it was pretty fun well, that, that was a great memory that this concert in Blue Island was similar to that. Like, wow, these people really love me. And they, they affirm me not just as like a symbol of what they want me to be as a priest or something, but this thing which I is pretty personal to me, music and these songs specifically, some of which I wrote. You know, it was cool. Sounds like an enchanted evening. It was nice. It was. It felt, it felt like an enchanted evening. It was, I'm glad I was there. And Megan Miller did an awesome job. She did. She did do a good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, how you been? Should we pray? Good. Yeah, let's pray. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm. Relax. Father Oaks, pray, pray for, for us. Mind your own business. Okay. <laughs> Blessed John he Henry is, Newman. He has to. Father Oaks has to be so disgusted that he's affiliated with this in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. So, but listen. You better get us some graces for real. For real. Pray for us right now. Pray for Do you us. think he's like acting like he's not listening, but then he actually is listening? Just for his I name. wonder about that. I mean, or, one of my theories is he that... He genuinely might not be interested. I haven't thought through this, but I've just assumed that when you're in heaven, you know everything like God knows everything. 
like in this, go, in the way go. that not that you become God, but that you like, why else would you be able to whisper a saint's name under your breath? Like, blessed John Henry Newman, pray for us while you're praying your rosary to yourself in the church. And why would he be able to hear it unless God gave him like heaven is different where you can actually hear all that stuff. Like kind of yeah, like God but, does. But then it raises the question is what's the point of asking for the intercession of a saint if it's just going through God to a saint to bring back to God? I don't know. What's the point of any of this, man? God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. What's the meaning of this, man? Dude, Come man. On, man. <laughs> so I have a, a couple of things. <laughs> hey, real quick. Okay, go ahead. Real quick. Get that, that kind of nasally. Yeah, yeah. What are we even going on here? Yeah, man. Dude. Dude. Listen, this is about the fans. Have you like, ever thought about, <laughs> if you think about it, dude, it's really deep. <laughs> Well, just wanted to welcome on a second week in a row. We're having Matthew McConaughey on the podcast. Oh, yes, next. indeed. And you, um, hope it's okay. I didn't clear this with you, but we have in the room here, obviously not going to say anything, but this week, former Vice President Joe Biden is Yo. with us. Oh, nice. How's it going, Joe? Yeah, so continue. Thank you, Joe. Actually, my thing was about that. Um, the, uh, the silent co-host's idea kind of <laughs> made me think of um, how certain like real radio shows and even some podcasts that are more like real radio shows and less like three dinguses talking about dumb things and pseudo intellectual banter they have a producer or somebody like behind a glass i'm thinking of fraser you remember the show fraser never saw it never you never saw, saw the show fraser ah! i know the guy i remember when it's on i've seen cheers Okay, well, he was a character from, of... he was a spirit spinoff of Cheers, uh, mm-hmm. but it was more popular like in the 90s. Anyways, he's, he was a psychiatrist radio host in Seattle. That was the premise. And there was a character named Roz who was his, I want to say the title of that person is producer, who kind of sits behind a glass with headphones and like answers phone calls and filters phone calls and then like puts them on the air and does all like a bunch of behind the scenes technical stuff. Um, you want to hire somebody to do that? I think that we should have somebody that we can just be like, I don't know, like this character's name was Roz. I don't know, wh- whatever his or her name might be. And if we ever came to a point where we didn't know something or we needed something looked up or... Oh, that's fun. We could just call, we could just ask them to get it. And of course, they would never speak, but they would get that information or do that thing for us. We need a Roz. We need a Roz. I was thinking, I was thinking her name could be Grace. Grace, could you look that up? It's like a Siri function, mm-hmm. but but for the cast, right? I don't yeah. know, just a thought. And then another thing I wanted to say was that a very cool thing in my priesthood happened this week, which which was that a young man who may listen, I I'm pretty sure his mother listens. Uh, mother's name is Moira Fortier, or Fortier. I can't remember how they pronounce it, but. Um, the young man's name is Declan, and he was in a uh, fight night for his um, high school, like a fundraiser for his high school, where they train and they box each other. And it was on Saturday, and got, he got a hold of me and wanted a special blessing before the fight, along with his uncle, I think, who was training or helping him. Dude, And it was nice. exactly <laughs> the inspiration for the move. This is what really endeared oh, him to me was that in many of the Rocky movies before his <laughs> fights, he goes to the priest, to the rectory, and, yell, and just yells up to the window, Hey, Father Carmine! Father Carmine, will you throw down a blessing? 
<laughs> and then he throws down a blessing, and that's how he wins the fights. So I just wanted to say the kid completely won my heart that day. Nice. Wow, man. So that, De- Declan, God bless you. That is Declan. awesome. Dude, that is a, that's a legitimately huge moment in your life. Yeah. <laughs> that is totally. Did he win the fight, though? I want to know. I told him to update me, but I haven't heard. This was this past Saturday. Uh oh. Dun 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 Here's okay. what I found on how do you say now. spinoff in Spanish on the web? No, Grace, get Ted Dan's on the line. Let's see how this <laughs> Frazier thing got off the ground. Get Bill Mackesy on the yeah, line. Yeah, absolutely. And then send him a thank you letter. Please um, come Bill. No, she would have to go through like a glitchy period of two months or so where she would m- mishear everything that we say. Mm. And so then it'd Wait, be is like, she a computer program or a person? I was thinking a person behind glass with headphones on. That's the same. She could get us more uh, Guadalupe Roastery coffee, for instance, which I'm drinking oh. right now. It's delicious. Uh, I'm we also talked drinking about it right now. It's yes. very delicious. Cheers. Cheers. Mm, coffee for the common good. I'm drinking the Ethiopian specialty. I think we got some Brazilian bazaar. Is this the Brazilian or the Col- Is this the end of the Colombia? I think this is the end of the Brazilian. Maybe it's the end of the and Brazilian. And the start of the Colombian soon. Ooh. Either way, it's delicious. Mm, so good. And I drink this stuff in my sleep. <laughs> Not the best endorsement for a coffee, but. <laughs> All right. So I had a thought. I went and saw a Quiet Place this week. <laughs> About time, dude. What did you think? <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, let me start by saying that I was I was chastised. It's a nice, uh, not a not seriously chastised, but told uh <clears throat> that we talked a long time about a quiet place last time and he goes uh, somebody in my parish that listens goes how how long can you t- guys talk about a movie jeez so i'm oh, loath to bring to it up out. again but yeah. you're about to find it up like maybe two weeks three perhaps <laughs> yeah um wait like last time we talked about it for a long time i didn't think we did but apparently he did he listened hey, we never the even talked about it well, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, now, yeah. we talked about my experience of right. A Quiet Place. Right, right, right. Which oh, somebody treading on, very interesting. on his experience. Then, whoa. <laughs> so let's actually talk about the movie and see how it... Can you time it? All right. Well, how about we say spoiler alert? We'll try to keep, we'll try to keep uh, the spoilers to a minimum. Okay, so we're just gonna go. Spoiler alert! No, I don't. This? I don't want to talk about it in general, but because um, if you if you want to hear like the religious take on it, I think Father Barron's Word on Fire show. I'll put that in the notes. Him and Brandon Vote do a weekly. Do you know that he do, does a weekly podcast with Brandon Vote? Vot? Yeah, we we put him on the map, dude. Oh, that's right. We were the reason they're successful. Um, mm-hmm. Is right. He's a spinoff of us. Yeah, that's we already have a spinoff. <laughs> it's called <laughs> the Word on Fire. It's show. called Word, Word on, on Fire. Fire. <laughs> Check it out, everybody. Yeah. By the way, they mentioned us once on on their podcast very briefly, and that week we experienced a huge spike in downloads. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anywho, what was I going to say? I had two thoughts. Uh, quiet place. Quiet place. Oh, interestingly, on the theme from last week, your shushing of teenagers and them being yeah. fourteen and fifteen specifically. This American Life, which I 
found out last week you guys don't listen to. Just this week, there's a a story on it about something similar. It was had to do with uh, Schindler's List and some kids from a black neighborhood going to see Schindler's List and getting in trouble for laughing during a very serious movie and then it becoming this whole big race thing. And um, oh, really? Steven Spielberg himself went to the school and, and whatnot and kind of smoothed things over. Anyways, I'm not done listening to the story, but I thought, wow, that's appropriate for the theme from last week in shushing teenagers and just the affective immaturity of laughing and inappropriate because that movie i could i could see why a teenager in fact i was talking to my own youth group at the end while it, some kids were waiting for their rides and it was the day after i'd seen a quiet place and i was like oh you guys got to see a quiet place and they said oh we saw it uh this week and and then they started making fun of it and being like, I thought it was ridiculous. And they were trying to point out all these plot holes in, a, you know, really dumb ways. Um, <laughs> but they were, they thought it was like ridiculous and they were laughing at the how the old man screamed or how he how Jim from the office put his finger up to his nose and how it looked like he was picking his like all of the most immature things you could possibly think to notice in a movie that intense. And, and in many ways, I think beautiful. All as a way of leading up to um, just one specific scene that struck me was when it becomes clear that she's pregnant and, you know, he's working down in the basement on those ear things, the hearing aids. And it's like a very tender scene between husband and wife and they start dancing and, you know, they can't make any noise. So she's got earbuds in and she gives him one earbud and they just, I think he signs to her that she's beautiful and she makes some joke about how she's fat. And Oh, he says she's glowing. Something like that. And then they just have this moment where it's physical, but it's not, um, you know, it's not a sex scene, but it's <clears throat> sexual in the sense that like, okay, these are, she's pregnant, he's a man, she's a woman, they're married, and they're having this tender kind of scene. Like the, the love is still yeah, it's, alive. It's, very, it's definitely romantic and sexual, but it's mm-hmm. not erotic. Right. Good, good distinction. Well, it made me think, um, I thought of that scene when I was reading Love and Responsibility, which I'm still working on. And I wish I had the quote in front of me. But um, he said something in, in the way of, against pornography, because he was talking about chastity and uh, kind of recovering an ideal of chastity, not just in the sense of like a negative prudishness, but in a positive like affirmation of the person. Um mm-hmm. And he was saying why pornography is this kind of classic JP2 argument that it's not that it shows too much, it's that it shows too little. Um, you know, it, yeah. obs- it obscures one's ability to see that person as a person because you're so focused on body parts or the body as a potential object of use or enjoyment rather than that person is a person with an interior life and a and kind of incommunicable uniqueness um, that's that has dignity and infinite worth. But he said something like um, that artists still have an obligation to present the real, the reality of love, even sexual love. Obviously not to the point of like showing physical sex, like that would be pornography. Um, But like the human body, like nude paintings and things like that, or even I thought of that scene from A Quiet Place and another one, which is like it kind of changed my attitude towards love scenes and movies because i always kind of see them especially like hbo shows it's just like some gratuitous nudity has to be thrown into the show because it needs an r rating or something i don't 
it always seems so gratuitous to me um, in most movies and TV shows when they put that in there. But the movie In America, have you ever seen that movie? No, I haven't. I have not. One of my favorite movies of all time. Um, wow. Yeah, really, really good. I've seen it, I don't know, three or four times. But it's about an Irish family that moves to New York, uh, kind of sneaks into the country by way of Canada, and he's an actor. Um, and she works, I want to say, in an ice cream shop or something like that. Um, and they're just scraping by in some poor area of New York and living in an apartment building with junkies in the lobby. And this guy downstairs who's this tortured artist who, it turns out, um, is very sick. And the children kind of bond with him and um there's an obvious i won't ruin the movie but there's an obvious wound in this family's past that has to do with another child that they lost and um they're just struggling and suffering and it's just this very real and raw i mean it's obviously um through the lens of a, a filmmaker so it's not it's narrative in its form it's not just a documentary but it's very real in that sense of like how art really seems real and there's a love scene in it where um i don't know just very natural the way you'd think that it, something like that would happen they give the kids like five bucks and send them to the ice cream shop where she works when she knows that her co-worker will watch them and it's it's even erotic but um it's not titillating or like in in uh intentionally arousing or anything like that but it shows the reality of married love and they end up conceiving another child and becomes a huge plot point. But I thought of that, those two scenes and like the reality of married love and how it's not chastity and um, sort of a, a Christian ethic of, of sex and love is not a no. It's not a negative thing where it's like, just don't show that because it's dirty. Mm-hmm. There is something there that's positive, but it has to be real and real in the sense of like the invisible becomes visible somehow or at least it's not obscured by things that are too distracting right because of our concupiscence we can't look past you know body parts if they're shown we you know it's too difficult to see the person behind that you know what i mean just a thought no it's a good thought i like i'm trying to think of another movie um where that might be an example in because i agree um with you i think it's very tough um apparently yeah who was the guy who made citizen kane what's the uh director of those movies orson welles is orson welles the director he's the director and the lead i think father oaks said that he said uh maybe it was hitchcock i don't know but some classic old filmmaker said that there's two things he would never attempt to film uh sex and prayer because yeah. there's no way that you could ever really on screen like really portray what's going on there interiorly. It would be too be too artificial to really communicate that because it's too profoundly human, prayer and sex. Hmm. It's pretty amazing that those are the two things. Yeah. 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 So that's all to say that it's probably pretty rare that it's done well. And yeah. I mean, in this scene, I'm talking about in a quiet place. It's just there's so much communicated with so little. I mean, it's probably a 30 second scene where they're just dancing and mm-hmm. slowly and embracing. But you feel this intense attraction and um, love and affection 
there's like an electricity between them that is erotic, but it's not distract. It's not like titillating. You know what I mean? It's just deep and human. Um, and the fact that there's a third person there in her belly, she's in a blessed state with a child beneath her heart. It's just a very beautiful, um, and especially amidst the darkness and this terror of that movie. Yeah. It made it even more stark, that contrast. Anyway, I really enjoyed it. I would see it again. Yeah, no, that just the image of them dancing and like mm-hmm. the placement of his hands. It just, it's an incredibly powerful image. Because mm-hmm. even there, their love is, it's like physically represented by another that they're both holding on to mm-hmm. and are both very, um, very invested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that you're thinking is very, about, oh, this baby's going to cry. She's going to have to go into labor. How are they not oh. going to make any noise? It's, I mean, it's a beautiful yeah. setup for attention it's intense (laughs) it is intense it's a beautiful movie holy smokes because it's Mm -hmm. a true horror movie too as well i mean yeah i like the one i mean just talking about i think there's more there i just can't think of anything there for the dancing scene because i love that scene too but the one that i had the biggest like effective movement with in the movie is actually the scene like where the old man screams and like is about to get devoured by that beast thing Mm mm-hmm but uh, John Krasinski, he like grabs his son and runs, and they you know are hiding behind the tree. But um, I just remember like his son is covering his ears and like wants to scream. He's holding his hand over his son's mouth, and he just he makes his son look at his face hmm. during it. And I I just thought that was really profound. Of and maybe it, there was a lot like you said it. There, that mu- movie was able to communicate a lot with a little, um, you know, just in. I don't know if that's the quality of acting. Like Jr. will talk a lot about like the the ability for some actors just to act with like their facial expressions to ex- express different emotions and what they mean by things. Um, but that was the one that has kind of stuck with me in some prayer time. Is like all this stuff, like this horrificness going around in that moment. Um, this really intense scene as well, and he just like he literally kind of holds his son's head to only see his face. You know, um, yeah. Well done, movie. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't notice that the first time, but I do remember you mentioning it hmm. that you had, you had picked up on it. Yeah, that's that is very powerful. Like, look to me, look right. to me. Just keep keep your eyes focused on me. Hmm. Yeah, I, I did not notice that until you mentioned it. It was that, and then I, and this is this is more of a stretch than either of the other two things. But, and again, I think the the acting was just good, or I enjoyed it anyway. But. Uh, it just always seemed like uh, Krasinski and what is her, what's his wife's name? Emily, Emily em- Blunt. Emily Blunt. Like both of their characters, except for maybe the scene in, when she's in the basement in the water, maybe. It just seemed like they were never like afraid of the monsters. Hmm. They were always afraid for their kids like in the presence of the monster. Yeah. Which was super cool as well. Yeah, I'm talking more about the movie and different effective movements than mm-hmm. like that particular scene, and and because that's just I would love to talk more about that too. Of um, just the notion of like what can be communicated through something like art, and then what should be communicated through something like well, art in the human experience. I think you can go to either direction, but I, I do think as for the movie, what was so cool to me about it, um, it reminded me a lot of I Am Legend, uh, where they're sort of a lot of silence and you remember that movie with will smith yeah yeah yeah, the yeah. monsters can I only have... come out at night 
Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Um, I, w- okay. I just I went off and thought like, wow, I wonder if this is a recent thing, like in the last 10, 20 years, or if there's always been kind of a a thing or a specifically American thing that this idea of apocalyptic wasteland nightmare place where something terrible has happened and we all have to figure out how to survive on our own. Because there are a lot of TV shows and movies of late that kind of explore that idea. Walking Dead, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but... Walking Dead. Oh, that's a big eyes. one. But they, mm-hmm. but they did have, um, you know, like Attack of the Body Snatchers and War oh, of the yeah. Worlds right. back in the day. Or even like some of the anti-totalitarian dystopian type stuff where... Like, what is it? Uh, Fahrenheit 451. Or like, even Interstellar, you could say, is in a, in a oh, way. Yeah, yeah. Interstellar yeah, for as well. For sure. Yeah. I think that genre, well, we may be depicted a little bit differently, but which is actually, well, just going through the book of Revelation in the Office of Readings. Dang, dude. Oh Apocalyptic <laughs> literature is. I, I know. It's like the most intense That's, book of all time. Yeah. The book of Revelation is crazy man i have no I hate to say this but i always can't wait for it to be over <laughs> hopefully it makes sense someday <laughs> well i kind of think that it's he knew who he was talking about with all these beasts and and marks and numbers and whatnot i mean they had specific meanings it was all like this clouded language um dr nagel had a good way of saying like this uh the prophets and the apocalyptic literature speaks in this symbolism where we would say in philosophical terms that God is omniscient, where they would say God has four faces, meaning he looks in every direction, sees everything, you know, or God is all present, omnipresent. They would say, no, God has wings or wheels, which means he can go everywhere. Right. So it's like an earthier, more physicalist way of portraying these philosophical things, these things that we're, that we're used to seeing as philosophical, but gosh, you get, you read enough of it and you're like, okay, how many horses and what's the beast's head look like and the body of what, a man and the where face is this of a beast banished to? Where right. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Like flats and trumpets and blood is like careening out of the sky like a comet. A lot of people are dead. Crashing yeah. into the earth. You got swords coming out of people's mouths. Mm-hmm. But then today, like the, the, the writer who's going to strike his enemies down and bring justice to the world shows up and he's got like a, a cape that says like he is king forever. He is Lord forever. Lord of Lords and King of Lord Kings. of God. He is word of God. And he like, he strikes down his enemy and he smote his ruin upon the Mount. That's Gandalf. <laughs> That's Gandalf in the Balrog. That's not the book of Revelation. Did you have that memorized? Yeah, kinda, That's impressive. You're off into Loader right there. Loader. Well, that's just that one line. That's just that one line. Yeah. Well, so anyways, I, I think that one of the things I like, I like that genre of movie, the apocalypse. Let's see what we would, um, it probably scratches your prepper itch too, Rob, right? Doomsday? Dude, you, you know what road you're going. <laughs> right, anyways, I like that for that reason. Uh, it's sort of a fun imaginative thing, even if a little dark. But I also really like this one because here you have... A, a different world, you know, where all of a sudden there's this creature that doesn't actually exist, but could exist in theory that is blind, but has super hearing and is also very fast and big and scary and looks like a spider. Um, but now we have to like see all the consequences of the existence of this thing on our world as it is now. So like nobody's wearing shoes and instead of plates, they use leaves of lettuce and 
uh, in Monopoly, they use the uh, soft things instead of like the metal top mm-hmm. hat and what, like all these little consequences. It's a, it's a, just a cool exploration of like, let's say this were to happen. What, how, what would life look like? And then how would we address it? Um, whereas for me, I know you like, you guys like some spirit, uh, superhero movies, but why they're a hard sell for me sometimes is because there's always like Pacific Rim. There's always just some sword you can blast off in the okay, dude, last well, second. One, Pacific Rim. Let's not just throw that in. <laughs> of like the top tier of superhero movies. Yeah. Compared to, <laughs> yeah. Even though I'm on the same page as you for just for the record. Dude, I will say, well, we went to see um, the Deacon gift for the cam this year. We just like cooked out a bunch of steaks last night and then uh, took everybody to see the Avengers, which was pretty fun. Hmm. Uh, this is like a cam outing. But... I mean, and I like the Avengers movies. I haven't seen all of them, but this one was enjoyable. It's like cool how these stories are being like interwoven yeah. and it's literally been Marvel telling a story, the same story for like, I don't know, 15 years close yeah. to, which is impressive. <laughs> but I would see The Quiet Place way before I would see right. the Avengers again. No doubt about it. And this one, it was, it was very good. Oh, Avengers. yeah. It got a 9.1 on IMDb. I couldn't believe that. It was super good. There's like maybe eight other movies ever made that have gotten that. High. Not that that's the be like the be all end all, but that's a huge rating. You know what else though about the just kind of the 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 Quiet Place movie that I think I don't know. You're talking about like that scene of um, them dancing and all this stuff. Like what else they could have shown? Because they could have shown like you know, having to be quiet during a sex scene or something like that as well. There's so many other routes they could have gone in that movie. Um, and it's similar. This will be a quick point, but, and Bisque, just don't be a jerk for like 30 seconds. I know. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I really am trying to be better about that. I'm, anyway. it's not obvious. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my point is when I saw The Sound of Music downtown, was there was like multiple times in that show where like I was almost cringing because I thought some like little underhanded thing kind of like just like little, you know, poking fun at the church or like religious people in general. Like I kept thinking that was going to come like they were going to work that in just because it's a live production and they never did. Like Hmm. there was like real reverence, at least acted in in that show. And it was it was it just made it like very, very pleasant to, to see. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just something like our generation is so used to, you know, that, um, yeah, like we're going to have a sex scene just to have a sex scene mm-hmm. or like we're going to, um, you know, there's a bunch of nuns in that play and it's like, we're going to somehow work in about how these nuns are like too strict and mean in the old days mm-hmm. or, or like a, you know, kind of a more like even like a deeper cut type type joke. Plenty of opportunities to do that. And they didn't do it. I mean, kudos to them. And it, and it made it like just watching it from my seat, like it made it way more enjoyable. Yeah. It was a different experience because of it. Yeah. And yeah, so whatever they were able to do in A Quiet Place, like it was a very beautiful movie. Yeah. That scene, I think, it certainly would, would probably be the pinnacle of it. But what interesting just to do the movie musical comparison is Les Mis itself. 
Sure. Um, I think exactly. Les Mis has a lot of intense beauty that's in it that I that I think the movie portrays very well. A lot of intense sadness, a lot of desperation, a lot of suffering, but then also a lot of redemption and forgiveness and mercy. And when we went and saw Les Mis the last time, there was quite a bit of it's what seemed to be added raunchy humor. Exactly. In it. In it, yeah. And I and w- even just our walk back to the car, we we saw it with Sister Alicia. We all kind of had that same feel like. It just wasn't, it was like a, a knockoff version mm-hmm. of it. And I was telling a classmate, um, well, he's not a classmate, but another seminarian up here about, I was giving him the pitch to go see A Quiet Place. I've been uh, publicly evangelizing for this thing. Uh, and he was like, dude, I'm not a horror movie guy. I, I don't do well with horror movies. They stay with me. I said, look, honestly, I'm not a horror movie guy either. Mm-hmm. They, like, I'm a scaredy cat, man. You turn the lights off after I've seen a horror movie. What I just saw is about to happen in my room. Mets does hate. <laughs> I am convinced. Yeah. I am totally convinced. Like my imagination just runs wild. Have you ever seen a 28-year-old man scurry up the loft of his bed? <laughs> <laughs> like something's coming at my toes. I can feel it. So, but I said, look, after I saw this movie, the only thing that stayed with me was oh. not any of the jump scenes or like any of because it is a horror movie mm-hmm. or not like the challenging scenes when she's pregnant. Cause he mentioned that in the trailer, they show her pregnant and like in danger. And there's lots of adult intensity there, emotional adult intensity. But the only thing that stayed with me after that movie was like deep edification. I was deeply edified and that's it. I mean, when you get like this type of sound of music or when you see a good version of Les Mis, like you're you're deeply edified, even though you have a fluctuation of a lot of different hard, like adult, you know, d- varying emotional scenes. Um, when you, I think, portray the beauty of the thing itself, then it, it just stays with you in a very satisfying way. Doesn't always mean that it feels great, mm-hmm. but there's like, wow, I experienced something that was a little bit deeper than the everyday, um, superficial take on throwaway humor on raunchy jokes, on cheap depictions of love. Like, there was something so substantial about that. And amidst the whole movie, I I left edified. Even though I hassled some gals, <laughs> jumped and spilled popcorn, and had some laughs, you know, like all of those things, like a real edification stayed with me. Um, I think that there's something to be said for our whole idea of, there being classic art, meaning kind of timeless or mm-hmm. universal. Um, because I think ultimately that's a statement about human nature, that there's something universal and timeless about human nature. And what you were saying about like a knockoff version, it reminded me of um, an article I may have referenced a while back on the podcast, but something about sentimentality. There was a first things article against sentimentality or something like that. Um, defining sentimentality as like emotion in excess of its object. Um, meaning like trying to kind of counterfeit a, a reaction or a feeling rather than mm-hmm. just presenting the thing itself. The Like you said, the thing itself, the reality, the beauty of the thing itself, letting it reveal to the person, the observer, the listener, the reader, um, something that can't really be said in a discursive way. Like why poetry sort of obscures it doesn't obscure there's a saying like that that prose takes something complicated and tries to 
to make put it in simple language, whereas poetry tries to take something simple and put it in complicated language. Um, and they both serve a function that they reveal something about the thing. And poetry, the necessity for poetry or art or why you would look at reality through the lens of a of a camera directed by a, a human another human being is because there's some there's something about the reality that's in front of us every day, whether that's in our families or nature or whatever, that you can't see unless it's processed through the the mind or the the hands of an artist, you know. But you can tell a knockoff when you see it. You can tell a dated, kind of crappy, counterfeit version of something trying to be real, but really it's got the artist's hand prints all over it. It's too... Um, you know, I think of like this kitschy religious art. You know, I have a my screen on my phone is a icon of Christ uh, the Pantocrator, and it, it was like one of those ones I saw somewhere. I thought, wow, that really looks like Jesus. You know, um, and that's a funny thing itself because Jesus was never photographed. How do you, how do we know what he looks like? It's you know, people say the Shroud of Turin is what they, mm-hmm. the iconographers base the sort of structure of his face and stuff off of, but um, you know. Th- you can recognize him when you see him and you, you know, there's, there's pictures of Jesus that just don't do him justice. They might be photorealistic and look like an actual man, you know, but it's just like, I don't know. There's something too treacly and sentimental about that. The way that that's, you know, the classic, like Jesus up to bat with the kid (laughs) standing behind the kid up to bat and like helping him. You ever seen that picture? (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That presentation of this, like the cool surfer dude in a white robe and barefoot, helping us, you know, helping the businessman write his checks and helping the kid hit a home run. It's just sentimental. It's not the real crucified and risen Jesus. Um, But that's true of like all art. You know, you can just, you you get a smell test. I mean, some people, they like the superficial and the sentimental and the kind of sugary, sugar-coated thing. It's like, because it's unoffensive. Okay, that that movie was great because there was no swears in it. But I don't know. I that doesn't appeal to me at all. Like, I'll, give me the swears if it's like, and as long as it's real art, you know. Yeah, because it's it's. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm done. Well, it's just like all of those things. Like Jesus really is there with the kid as he's batting, and he really is there with the guy writing the check. And I mean, not to one up, and maybe I've already said this on the podcast, but did I tell you all about uh, my brother showed me these photos of a couple? Who in their in their photos, their engagement <laughs> <You did>. photos? <laughs> Continue. They paid. <laughs> they paid a guy to dress up like Jesus. You're kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> and their engagement photos. So it's like them holding hands with Jesus, like running through a field. Did they do it as <laughs> yeah. a joke? And then it's like them. No, it was very real. Oh, my goodness. So, like, Jesus really is a part of that wedding, you know, as a part of that marriage. Right. But it's not, it's not, it's, like, depicted in a, in a not real way. Mm-hmm. He's, he's real in a, that reality is present in a different way. Um, what's that, what's that form of art called where they start to, well, it's a type of sentimentalism, but there's a, a more formal name for it. DMAC kind of rails on it. I don't know, but DMAC has a good principle for this stuff about particularly like religious, the saints or the Lord himself depicting them in art. Uh, because we do have a rich tradition of depicting God in art because of the sacramental imagination and everything. We believe that it can, things we make can actually communicate divine and invisible realities, but they have to be, what does he say? 
particular enough to be recognizable, but universalizable enough or general enough to be, was it particular enough to be recognizable, but abstract enough to be general, you know, meaning like the face of Christ, it can't be like, if you're going to model, have somebody be the model for Christ, I can't look at that Christ and be like, oh yeah, that's Joe. He sat for that painting, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and maybe that's it. There has to be something Christness. There's some Christness about that depiction of him that is abstract enough that I can't tell. Like that's just, which is why there's there's some art I saw in a church that's like the resurrection and a couple of scenes from the life of Christ where they used real models in their paintings, but they just look exactly like the people they. I'm not an artist, so I I don't know how this is done, but it looks like a photograph. They're paintings, but they look so photorealistic. It's like yeah. looking at a, at a photo. And it, it's just not the same as, I mean, there's a time and a place to depict the crucifixion and stuff with real actors and real people. And, and that can draw you into the mystery. Although you, you might say like, oh, I know that guy that's playing Jesus right now or the guy that's playing the soldier. But you can enter in, but just take a picture of that and put it up in your church as like your art instead of, I don't know, the job of real artists is to, is to somehow present the reality and that was what was interesting about that jp2 quote ultimately it was about the sexual stuff in particular like the depiction of sexual love in an authentic way needs to happen like it needs to be represented in art but in a way that's authentic and not artificial Um, Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean that's very true i mean you just walk into places you can just tell what's ugly and what's not what's like too abstract like the kind of saints that look like they're emerging from blocks of ice or mud and like you know this really <laughs> crass coarse style that's very abstract and hard to recognize but then there's also the too photorealistic where it's like oh that saint looks like a dude in my yeah. physics class or something yeah yeah Nope. There's well, even when we were in uh, Paris last spring at the the Louvre that day, um, we went through. Obviously, we spent a lot of time in like the religious section, which was incredible. But there was a whole like portion of a wall, just uh, filled with paintings of is it Susanna? Is that the the woman bathing in yeah, the Book yeah, of Daniel? Yeah. And like she gets accused. And there was one in particular. I mean, like seriously, this painting is probably like, twenty five feet tall or something like that. It was huge, but it really struck me. It changed the way I read that passage because it was, I mean, like the woman painted in this photo was beautiful and completely nude. She was like literally bathing and yeah. you could like see the guys watching her like in the, in the photo. But it was, it was similar. It was like, it was not, I would also say it's like not, it's a very like gripping photo i mean it strikes you when you see it but it's not an erotic it's not pornography yeah. like you knew immediately looking at it like wait it's a painting or a f- you said photo is it, is it's it a, a painting, painting. Okay. It, it's a painting yeah but it is not uh like a pornographic painting right at all right um but it was i mean it was incredible it was yeah. very very beautiful and like that whole section it was just you're like wow like and then you read that again you're like man if you read that story you kind of like having seen this art in the bible you're just like it, it makes the story that much more intimate to to read it and um yeah it's just like whoa that, that changed yeah like the biblical literature for me seeing like very profound art 
um, of it. Yeah, and then it probably or like the nudity actually adds to the reality of like she oh, yeah. was violated. There's mm-hmm. real perversity that's going on in that story, mm-hmm. and like kind of veiling that reality by either keeping her clothed or whatever. But like her her nudity adds to the reality of the story. It doesn't take away from it. Absolutely. And her, her the nudity in and of itself is not being objectified. And actually, a similar experience that I had at the Louvre, but on another type of topic um, or well, a similar topic, but a different act was David slaying Goliath. Hmm. And there was a, a number of depictions of David slaying Goliath. And some of them were fierce. Like David mm-hmm. was getting yeah. after it with Goliath about to chop his head off. Mm-hmm. He just smashed this guy in the head with a stone and he's coming at him to kill him with his own sword. And it never felt like, this was there was like gratuitous violence that was going on there, but it 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 only added to the story of like this this triumph of David to him, and I never got the sense that like man this is just a disgusting image even though he's chopping a guy's head off, mm-hmm. but it always just felt ordered and whole uh, for whatever reason I don't know how that happens but because I, I I just jumped to the how, how often we can use violence as well to kind of mm-hmm. get a rise and like we can use it pretty cheaply right. um, in modern art, especially, but yeah, I don't know how you, how you depict it, how you depict the reality of those things instead of focusing on these particularities. I don't know. Well, it's, it's whatever it is, it's cool because what mm-hmm. art allow, what you guys are saying, those are both examples of art allowing you to see past the appearance to the reality. Um, it's presenting the same thing as if you were like if you were in that art garden with that beautiful woman bathing or if you were on that battlefield and you could smell the blood and the grossness of what's going on there it would, might be hard for you to really see you know let's take the case of Susanna I mean the bugger of it all is that what sin has done especially to us men is like we're not able to see the beauty of women because of concupiscence like it has to be veiled from us for us to be preserved from being distracted by the physical beauty to not like to not be able to see like the wholeness the whole beauty of the female person you know um of which the body's a part you know um but when you look at it from for some reason through the artist's eyes and you see those guys you you see the grossness of that like the perversity of those guys using this beautiful person for their own selfish benefit, especially even to the point of like trying to kill her. That story, oh gosh, those guys in that story are such slime balls. Yeah. Um, yeah they get so pwned though. They do get pwned by the <laughs> young, <laughs> young That's Daniel. That's a great story. <laughs> I mm-hmm. was really upset one time. That I, I was trying to teach, I taught a theology of body when I was a seminarian to some eighth graders and I wanted to use that story to talk about lust and stuff. And um, I was like, oh, I bet you this, this is going to shock them that this is even in the Bible because it's so raw. Um, and they had some Protestant Bibles at this Catholic school and it's not in the Protestant version of the book oh, of Daniel. Oh, it's a Bible, dude. Dang it. Yeah. Isn't that annoying? Yeah. I guess there's parts of Daniel that are probably only in Greek or were only in Greek until they discovered them in Hebrew or whatever. Um Luther just taking a... It's the apocryphal. Right, the apocryphal books. Um, But yeah, I don't know if I wanted to say anything 
other than that, other than the fact that there are these things which are real that you that we can't see that somehow grace sometimes working through art can open our eyes to see. And that's really the project of growing in holiness is to be like have your sight restored so that you see for real the beauty of things. But what is it in like, okay, so take, I was going to say Stranger Things, but the, A Quiet Place, like that scene, is that scene, is it acting? Is it just how the movie has like built up to that point to like, you know, the story they're trying to tell of like, here's this family that is like, just loves each other and has chosen life in the midst of this like horror setting. Is it the setting? Like, what is it that like makes that such a beautiful scene? I don't know, man. It's the mystery of art, but I know that what yeah. what it does do is it it points your attention. I same thing with writing. Like read East of Eden, and there's another example of something very, very particular. These people that the story is about are couldn't be yeah. more particular. They're not just general like placeholders for bad person, good person, nice person, loser person. You know. Yeah. Although each of the you know characters do kind of carry some of that with them but they're particular in their existence. You believe that they could be real, but they're also general enough to where you're like, this story isn't about me or even a time period or place I've ever been in, but I see somehow what this is saying about human nature and it's affecting me, you know? Yeah, and I think in that one too, there's something with like, it was just really brilliant to use like the iPod headphones like for that scene as well. Because somehow like that allowed... It's similar to I remember when the um, the first of the new Star Wars came out a few years ago, and I read this article talking about like why, in a sense, Star Wars is just like such a obsessive thing for so many people. But they were saying that um, like from the original movies, and I don't know about like the second three in the early two thousands, but then this set, like a bunch of the parts and stuff, like for these crazy spaceships and all that stuff. They act. They literally just had cars and mechanics like on the set, and they would like use car parts to, like, kind of do the work on these ships. And you know, as they're like, you know, trying to get certain parts and everything. Oftentimes, they would just be car parts that we would like almost subconsciously recognize to help us like enter into that reality more. And so it helps you like all of a sudden then this universe or world or whatever. just becomes that more, much more believable because, yeah, it just draws you in in some way. Mm-hmm. And so, just, just for like a minute in a quiet place, they're just like a beautiful married couple, like sharing, you know, sharing headphones, dancing in the midst. Everything else is kind of able to fade away in it, like in the midst yeah, of all this. You feel welcomed in for a setting. Not in a weird way or a creepy way, but you're you're led into mm. not unlike the listeners of our podcast are led into our conversations. You were led into like something that's interpersonal and sort of impenetrable um, by the way it was filmed, and like that. Even listening to music together with one earbud each, you're you're, you're sharing this thing like no one else can even theoretically share in. You know, I think about this when I'm running. Sometimes I, and I'm listening to some music that's got me all pumped up. I'm thinking like nobody else can actually hear this, but I, I to me the whole world is full of this music. You know what I mean? So if I just start punching the air to the rhythm of the of the music, <laughs> I would look ridiculous. But yep. <laughs> to me, it would make sense. You know, um, 
So it's, oh, yeah. same, you know what I mean? It's like this sharing of something totally into, it's just a little indicator of the intimacy of that embrace. Yeah. That's a, a brilliant way to portray like something that only two people share in. Mm-hmm. Only two people are sharing in that, in those two headphones. Right. And it, which is a symbol of like those two, this is, they share together. Uh, and all of a sudden you're I, being allowed into this intimacy in a way more real way than like a sex scene would actually allow you to experience yeah, a reality. You'd just be like, like some creepy guy in the room watching them do something private. Right, because you know you're not supposed to see that yeah. in that setting. Right. Yeah, and nobody else in the world knows that that's going on or sees it or hears it or anything. But like it, that is just for them, for those two. Mm-hmm. And the headphones is a brilliant way to communicate that. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's... Well, I can tell my friend Mike that uh, we can not only talk about a movie for a long time, but one particular scene of the movie for over 50 minutes. We're going to talk about it again. Dang, dude. <laughs> I Mike. had, uh, shoot, I had something else shit. along these lines. Along oh. these lines. I woke up from a nap today because I never work. I don't do anything. Um, and I had the... Oh, hey, I remembered it. A band name in my it. head. Okay, no, 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 just go, just go, just go. <laughs> All I, oh, I'm just going to say it was a band name, Heart Wheels. <laughs> like Hot Wheels, but Heart Wheels. <laughs> anyway, I wrote it down. I don't think it's a great idea, but I'm just starting to write those ideas down. When I wake For up, a band name? I, yeah. Heart Wheels. Heart Wheels. <laughs> what were you saying, Mike? <laughs> Heart Wheels. <laughs> Um, uh, Grace or Phyllis, what, can you can you capture that? Heart wheels, write that down so I don't forget that. Thank you, Phyllis. Phyllis. Dude, how about John Krasinski? He needs to quit sharing iPhone or headphones with people. Him and Pam, they have a very romantic. Oh scene yeah, that's where right. they share a headphone. Maybe that's the inspiration for that. Didn't he direct the movie as well? Yeah, he did. We're still. Oh, that's about a, that's movie. a definite homage to Jim and Pam too. Yeah. Jim and Pam, dude. Yeah. Uh, is it though? Man, wouldn't it have been That's a distraction? What if Pam. his wife in that movie was Pam? <laughs> How much of a distraction would that have been? That would have been a massive distraction. <laughs> it would have been too much. Yeah, too much. No, hey. So along these lines, is this came up when we were talking about all this, and we're, I'm gonna have to talk through it in order to fit it in. Um, but it, it, for whatever reason, this came up when we were when we were talking. Is Robbie is doing a class that's an ecumenical class. And so he has folks from a bunch of different seminaries who come up here and study together. And they read Flannery O'Connor in this class. Huh. And one of the gals um, in the class, after she read it, she she like totally missed the entire thing. And she said, how can a believer use language like this? Huh. And and Robbie was like, dude, dang it. You, she missed it. She she didn't uh, she didn't see what Flannery was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, what story did they it, read? I I don't know. He didn't tell me. He didn't tell me. But it for whatever reason that came up, and I think it's part of is like you you got to have there are certain eyes that you got to see it, mm-hmm. and we would prefer the very human like just give me the real deal thing, which I think Flannery tries to do maybe up up on steroids. Mm-hmm. Um, she kind of gives you like humanity to the max and then infuses it with grace. But, uh, it's, it's tough to swallow at times. Like that story, that's that, that story with, uh, Susanna, um, like a, a lot of folks would probably be scandalized that that's in the Bible, you know, cause it doesn't go with our, 
typical religious uh, sensibilities. Um, yeah. So for whatever reason, can you help me try and fit that in there, Father Connor? Um, well, I wrote, I just wrote down a couple distinctions, which I think are, these are hard lines to walk in art or life <clears throat> to be real, but not vulgar and to be vulnerable, but not shameless. Um, I think I don't think Flannery O'Connor thing. And I think that objectively she's not vulgar, even though some of her characters are, you know, and her stories have content in them that are, you know, not, you wouldn't give to your eight year old to read for a bedtime story. Um, you need to be, have a certain level of affective maturity, but even then you might find them a little bit scandalous. Um, but she, I mean, her whole thing was the classic line that, you know, the land of the deaf, you have to shout. And in the land of the blind, you have to draw in, you know, shocking big lines. When people can't see the reality of God's grace, they have to be shocked by stories that catch your attention, you know, like people being killed or, you know, racist and blah, blah, blah. Like all the, all the different really hard themes that she kind of goes at head on class division and, and whatnot, um, that are hard to look at. And, but I don't think they're vulgar. They're real, you know, but you could imagine a world where like somebody tried to imitate Flannery O'Connor and it was just vulgar. There wasn't really that realness, the meaning behind it. Um, you know what I mean? And then there's the vulnerability thing where this goes back to that Tim Glemkowski tweet that I retweeted a long time ago about being real doesn't mean, um, being the worst version of yourself or being content to be the worst version of yourself. Like sometimes we fall into that trap of thinking, I'm just being real. That's why I swear a lot, you know. Um, that, that's just kind of a, a certain vulgarity or shamelessness where you you don't um, hold yourself to a certain standard. Like Flannery O'Connor objectively herself was this mousy, pious. I mean, a lot of the like her holy cards and her devotions and stuff were that kind of sentimental, treacly stuff was what she gravitated towards. But somehow she was given this muse that let her write, even though she was like never left the house. She was kind of a sickly young woman wrote these stories that are harrowing. Um, but I mean, if a person missed the point, they missed the point. That's, I don't think she's for everybody. No, I agree. I agree. There's a picture of her. Uh, I really want to find and frame and put in my office or room. Uh, She's standing in front of her house with her crutches, you know, those crutches that she had. And she's wearing this dress and she's smiling. And I, I bought a First Things had um, an article about this documentary about her. It was like a kind of an almost an amateur made. It's like a PBS, local PBS kind of documentary about her life. It was very good. And they showed this picture a couple times. I was like, man, I really want that picture. There's something very innocent about her, but that, but something so also deep, like that you know know from having read her stories. Like this is a vessel of some real yeah. weight, you know? I'm yeah. looking at that picture now. Is there a peacock in it too? Yeah, I think so. Yep. There's a peacock in it. That's perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, she's a, she's a type of a paradox. But I think also like when you when you create art, part of what goes into it is that risk that it's going to be misunderstood. Oh, of and course. like and right, being able to like authentically take that jump. And I remember hearing stories about even her, um, like she went up 
to upstate New York or maybe New York City and was asked to read one of her like pretty racially charged stories. And she was pressured to um, veil some of the language. And I think she chose against it, actually. Hmm. Um, but it's just like this little petite gal uh, who, yeah, like you said, is sickly. And that is a fearless thing to do, man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this belief in art or like any of those paintings being misunderstood or taken advantage of. So there is a type of, yeah, vulnerability, but not shamelessness in it. I do like those two distinctions as well. I like those distinctions a lot. Man, you got to put yourself out there when you do art, though. Holy totally. smokes. Oh Holy smokes. Yeah. Kind of like yeah. when you podcast. I'll never forget somebody telling telling me like the first couple months that we were doing the podcast. Somebody said, hey, I like your podcast, but you know what you guys should do is a, a daily YouTube video. I'm like, okay, thanks for the constructive criticism. That's not at all what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. You know what you should really do? Not not what you're doing. <laughs> you, should, you, you know what you should do? Different. Something different. <laughs> thanks for your input. Yep. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Down.